I looked up the definition of simulation just to sort of wrap my mind around what all the different things that word means. One of the definitions was imitation for the purpose of study. And I think about writing and creating and you know making art as this kind of simulation for the purpose of study or for the purpose of insight. Something interesting that I've experimented with in my book is myself playing the role of an algorithm. Part of the argument of my book is making a bit of an analogy between an artist and an algorithm. You know, algorithms play themselves a billion times in order to perfect itself. And I think there's a version of that metaphorically that I'm doing as an artist and writer, that I am going over and over and over things as a way to perfect my understanding of the world and my understanding of myself. That was writer and cartoonist Amy Kurzweil. Welcome to Black Mountain Radio, broadcast from the Mojave Desert. I'm Sara Ortiz. And I'm Naila Orr. Naila, welcome back. I wish you were here. I say welcome back, but clearly you're in Philly. You're still in Philly where you were last time, and I'm still here in Vegas, but I so wish I could hug you in real life. Do you remember the hologram that Will I Am used to beam into the CNN studios the night President Obama was elected? Yes. Okay, well, they should do one of those for me. Got to work with a company to develop a Naila hologram. I mean, I can see if KUNV wants to sponsor that. We'll find a sponsor <laughs> to sponsor a Naila hologram so that you're seated right across from the studio. That would be amazing. That would be so cool. Well, in this episode, we're looking into different kinds of simulation and its effect on loneliness and its relation to memory and how it's ever-present. I think back on Mary Carr. Mary Carr, for those who don't know, is a nonfiction writer, perhaps best known for The Liar's Club. But she wrote a book called The Art of the Memoir, and she makes a comparison that memory is like a pinball inside of a pinball machine. And she talks about how it messily ricochets around between idea and image and fragments of scenes and stories we've heard. It kind of changes over time. And works of art like fiction and nonfiction, they are replicating something. But bringing us back to our episode, in a complete accidental turn of events, all of our guests today, or most of them, are former Shearing Fellow alums. For those who don't know, every year BMI hosts writers to live and work out of Las Vegas, where they engage with our community and spend a number of months with us in this desert valley. And one of our folks is Amy Kurzweil, who you overlapped with, Naila, while you were here in Las Vegas. Yes. When I was a fellow, I spent a lot of time with Amy Kurzweil in downtown Las Vegas when we both lived there. Amy is a cartoonist and a writer. She's the author of Flying Couch, which is a memoir about three generations of women in her family. Amy's also a regular contributor to The Believer, mm -hmm. BMI's flagship magazine, where she often contributes to the comic section. In fact, I really enjoyed a comic she published recently in The Believer about her trip to visit Bina 48. Me too. Yeah, it's amazing. It was so good. Bina 48 is like, she's like a humanoid robot mm -hmm. that was created using a real woman's memories, feelings, and beliefs. I actually don't know how I feel about saying real woman in this context because having listened to all these pieces today, I've just been thinking differently about real and simulated and how we use those terms. Well, I'm curious to know how Amy would react to what you're saying right now. You know, while she was here, she was busy at work on her next graphic memoir, which features her father, Ray Kurzweil, and his father. 
And this new book encompasses themes of artificial intelligence and simulation of identities and love and family. And I wonder what she would have to say. In this segment, we'll hear from both Amy and her dad, futurist and inventor Ray Kurzweil. Ray developed a technology for voice-to-text and chatbots and is connected with a concept known as a singularity theory, which posits a hypothetical future of intense technological growth and superintelligent self-directed computers. Yes, and among his inventions are the first print-to-speech software for the blind, the first text-to-speech synthesizer, and the first music synthesizer capable of recreating the sounds of a grand piano and other orchestral instruments. In this segment, Amy and Ray discuss art as simulation and as a device to emulate emotion. Something that strikes me about the theme of simulation is I think it it gets kind of a bad rap. The idea of a simulation, often people will say, like, it's not the real thing, or there's something cheap or degraded about a simulation. But I think both of us maybe relate to the concept of simulation in a more positive way. I'm Amy Kurzweil. I'm a writer and a cartoonist. I'm the author of Flying Couch, a graphic memoir. I'm also working on another graphic memoir, which is called Artificial a Love Story. And it features my father and his father, who I never met, and the themes of artificial intelligence, simulation of identities, and love and family. I'm Ray Kurzweil. I've been involved in artificial intelligence actually for 60 years. When I started that, nobody had even heard of a computer, let alone artificial intelligence. I'm also the daughter of Ray Kurzweil, in case that wasn't clear from our shared last name. Really? Wow. Amazing. My new book is in progress. The through line of the book is that my father has this storage unit where he saved decades of documents from his father, who I never met, who was a musician in Vienna. And he fled Vienna in 1938. His life was very kind of climactically saved by this American benefactor who had heard him conduct a concert. And she mentioned to him, oh, if you ever, if, if you ever need anything, reach out to me in America. And that was 1937. And very soon after was the Anschluss. And as a Jew, he needed to get out of Vienna. And so this was this really dramatic story that I grew up hearing about this grandfather who I never knew, who we have all these pictures of him and he's so regal looking. We have these dramatic black and white photos of him conducting music. And, you know, hearing these stories about him, he just became kind of a a mythical figure to me. And this dramatic idea of, as an artist, your life is sort of saved by your own art just really captivated me. If this woman hadn't heard him play and wasn't so moved by his music, he may not have had a way out of Vienna. And so that's always been a really moving story for me. And then the idea that my father has saved all these sort of artifacts from my grandfather's life in the storage unit, because my grandfather died in 1970 of heart disease. And he died relatively young, um, which is why I never met him. And so he, you know, he left behind all these letters and ledgers. He was very meticulous recording his financial life because I think he had a pretty stressful financial life as an artist. There's, there's a lot there and there's also a lot missing. And I just have found that, that experience of, of wading through his documents and asking the question, can I know this person that I've never met? That's been a really interesting experience for me. So then enter the impetus of the book, which is that my father collected all the writings from my grandfather 
and enter them into a chat bot. The algorithm searches through the writing of the person and provides you with answers to questions. So the algorithm does understand your question in a, in a sophisticated way, and it returns passages from the person based on all the documents that it has. And so I've interacted with this chatbot, and I've also, of course, interacted with the documents themselves because I was one of the people who actually entered these documents, you know, all the handwriting that first I couldn't read, and then I figured out how to read it, and then I typed it into the computer. So I was both a part of building the chatbot and also someone who's interacted with it. So the, the question of the book is, to what extent do I know this person who's not around? And how do I know him? Do I know him through his written artifacts? Do I know him through my father? Do I know him through the AI experience that I am having? And then swirling around that question, are these other memories and reflections from my life? Well, I've been actually trying to emulate intelligence since the beginning of my career. My first project was actually to create something that would compose music. And I started this actually around 1963. So that's over 55 years ago. From the beginning of your career, it seems that you've been thinking about technology as a way to not only simulate what humans do, but actually improve upon what humans do. I've always hated the idea of artificial intelligence because it sounds if you actually achieve it, it's not real, it's artificial. But what we're actually trying to do is get over the artificial aspect and achieve something that's real intelligence. And we're really doing that now, creating things that can actually write, for example, language. You can ask, for example, GPT-3 a question and it will actually answer you in the way a human would. GPT-3 is an algorithm that basically can write about anything. Any, you give it any question. You can also actually give it a sample of a, a particular person and it will emulate that person. That's a very good example of simulation and really an example of what artificial intelligence is trying to achieve. Yeah, so one of the features of the chatbot of Fred Kurzweil that I've interacted with is that it does not create new language. Something interesting that I've experimented with in my book is myself playing the role of an algorithm that might create new language for Fred based on my now deep understanding of how Fred would talk, which I think part of the argument of my book is making a bit of an analogy between an artist and an algorithm. You know, algorithms play themselves a billion times in order to perfect itself. And I think there's a version of that metaphorically that I'm doing as an artist and writer, that I am going over and over and over things as a way to perfect my understanding of the world and my understanding of myself. And so to be more specific about that with this book about my grandfather, I am reading his language and then I'm processing in my internal computer, which I don't understand how my brain works, but I'm processing his language and then I'm able to then spit out things he could have said that he didn't actually say. And I'm also able to spit out things he did say because I have all of that recorded and written down. And that is this way in which I'm I'm sort of acting like an algorithm that I'm thinking about all the possible versions of what he could have said. But I'm also thinking about what it what it meant, which is not necessarily something that the algorithms are doing yet, but they could one day think about meaning.
So your father's not around to fact check my book about him. And he's not around to fact check a potential algorithm that might take liberties with his language. I think about that a lot because so far I've only written books that involve characters who can fact check what I share about them and sometimes have strong opinions about it. And I try to ethically integrate those strong feelings about their representation. But Fred can't do that. And and I'm conscious of that as I'm writing this book. And it's it's difficult, you know, to know what choices to make. I'm curious what your experience is like relating to that chatbot. Does it remind you of your father? Does it feel sometimes like it is him? Or how does it strike you? He didn't actually speak that much. But the dialogues we have do sound like him. I mean, I looked up the definition of simulation just to sort of wrap my mind around what all the different things that word means. One of the definitions was like imitation for the purpose of study. And I think about writing and creating and you know making art as this kind of simulation for the purpose of study or for the purpose of insight. So you like create this new world and you walk around in it or draw around in it, think around in it. Sometimes the world that you create is a reflection of your memory or it's a reflection of things you think about or it's fictional. For me, the definition, the distinction between fiction and nonfiction is a little blurry. But, you know, you enter this world and then you sort of see what's possible within it. And memory, I think, functions that way for humans. Like memory is both for imagining the future and for recollecting the past. Part of the purpose of memory is to imagine what could have happened. But, I mean, art is a way of acting as a simulator because we're trying to recreate something. I mean, if you have a book, it's not just paper. I mean, you're actually trying to go beyond the paper to actually create a story that someone really feels like they're in. And it's the same with music. Music tries to emulate emotion. And if you actually get into the music, it, you don't just hear sounds. You hear emotion that goes beyond the sounds. Something people might not know about you, Dad, is that you majored in creative writing in college and you actually wanted to be a poet at some point in your life, which I love that detail. And it's actually something I learned because I was in this storage unit looking at documents that you'd saved and found this letter you wrote to your grandfather where you're arguing impassionedly for your your future career as a poet, which you then sort of shifted a little bit and decided to pursue writing and technology. But I'm just curious what you see as a sort of relationship between writing and the other things that you do. Why were you attracted to poetry? What choice did you make with writing in your life and why? Well, I mean, I did generalize poetry into writing in general. And writing is, is a way of inventing using the technologies of the future. Yeah, writing is a place to imagine your inventions without having to actually invent them. <laughs> so I can create something that will be a possibility 10 years from now, 20, 30 years from now. And so the fiction, I can actually react to the technology and see how it actually impacts our experiences as human beings. And I think the impulse to save documents and to save items of people that we love is a kind of recreation. A theme that's come up for me as I've been exploring these, these topics is just really seeing something like a like a chatbot or like an avatar of somebody who's passed away, that feels a lot less strange to me than it used to. 
it really feels like an extension of things that we've always done. And, you know, I have some concerns about it, but I, I, it, it feels more familiar to me, the idea that we might do that because it, it just feels like a natural impulse to save and organize. Yeah. And we don't typically understand AI well enough to really understand what the sort of ingredients are in recreating voices. But I think it's safe to say that we also don't really understand arts and writing well enough to always know kind of what the ingredients are that go into a fictional character or a nonfiction character on the page. But some of the stuff really goes to the very essence of what you're writing about. Like there's a whole different way of creating a personality that they will get at what that original personality was like. That, that didn't exist a year ago. Yeah, I think it's coming quickly, the, the way that people will interact with loved ones who are, who are gone, because we didn't have social networks for the previous generation. And we are now going to, I am going to enter old age and my friends will pass away and their entire adult lives will be on the internet. And that's a real paradigm shift for what it means to leave the world. I loved Amy's idea of artists and algorithms being analogous and how both seek to improve themselves and perfect their understandings of the world. Yeah, I love that. Art like fiction and nonfiction are kinds of simulations, whether one is working to improve themselves or improve the work or just simply replicating a narrative, whether it's imagined or real. So in this next segment, we're recreating a time and a place, specifically Vegas. I met the poet Vicky now about two years ago now when we were interviewing shearing candidates for our residential fellowship. And when we extended that official invite to V to join us here in Vegas, I didn't know that she would be admitted into a hospital a week later. So by the time that V arrived in Las Vegas a few months after that, she had already started her recovery process from an intensive heart surgery. And part of that healing process was walking first really early in the day, and then again much later in the evening, Vegas gets hot. (laughs) (laughs) And so those are the only two good times to walk and not be miserable. (laughs) But V, who is a wizard with language, calls this diurnal walking. I feel like poetry is is a really interesting site to think about simulation. Mm -hmm. So in this segment produced by Rachel James, with accompanying scoring from Geneva Skeen, poet V. Now takes listeners on a meditative sound walk around Las Vegas. In V fashion, it's poetic, it's visceral, and it's completely enmeshed in her lived experience. Here's V. I'm beginning the walk at 11 a.m. The intense heat of the afternoon light has not become unbearable yet. I must put on a hat, like a sombrero, to protect my face, and my gloves protect my hands. I don't even leave my ankle exposed. Now I'm out the door and I see cars whipping by. I'm passing the casino inside the grocery store to my right. This casino is always so dark. I don't know why anyone would want to lose their money or to win any money here. 
I walk because I want to forget my body. The heat can change the garment of everything, including the garment of loneliness. Even if the desert is full of desolation, do you think the heat makes it less lonely? Do you think a very hot day can be an antidote to loneliness? Or is it the opposite? I'm walking at night now and the air feels quiet. I walk away from the apartment in my flip-flops. The scorching heat of the day is no longer. I can feel the air between my toes and they are free to indulge in the Vegas atmosphere. I'm waiting now. The light turns green. I make eye contact with the driver in the car in front of me. I see my shadow projected on the pavement by the headlights. I hear the beating heartbeat of the walking street sign, like a machine becoming temporarily human. I can see the glowing green sign of Starbucks to the west, so I switch directions. The streets look emptier now, desolate. I'm picking up my pace, though my flip-flops are holding me back. I sit on the Starbucks patio, even though it is closed. I can see Jada Joe. I can see the gas station. I can see Panda Express. And then I can feel a few of my tears had fallen onto my cheek. I just let them fall. This is the desert after all. My tears blur the view of the city. I see the microscopic lights flooding the landscape like a gathering of a million fireflies and even with my blur vision, I suddenly make out the Starbucks security camera. I shift my body away from the camera, thinking, you can't hide in the desert wind. This makes Vegas a terrible place to die. It is not like San Francisco where you can bury your body in water where your soul is quietly tucked away. When you die in Sin City, your body will likely be found right away. I'm on St. Rose now, away from Starbucks. Worrying that if my consciousness and my body walk too closely, I might be compelled to let my body fall into traffic, ending my life. Yet, despite this fear, this fear of the edge, I walk and I walked away from the danger of that edge. 
I walked away from that edge, which is a very short ledge. a way for me to wake up to Sin City. Nocturnal walking is a way for me to gamble away my energy. My energy, my energy. And the ghost of my diurnal self is the ghost of my nocturnal life. Two bodies, one visible and one invisible, crossing and intersecting each other, conversing silently as I walk. I walk alongside the ghost of my former diurnal self. I walk. Our next segment features BMI Shearing Fellow alum Lisa Ko, who is the author of The Levers, which won the Penn Bellwether Prize for Fiction and was a National Book Award finalist. Lisa was one of our first fellows to experience our fellowship in a pandemic-ridden world. I should say one of the first times that we did a Zoom hang, it was an attempt to recreate the karaoke experience. My experience of Lisa and the pandemic and music was based around this essay she wrote for the Believers website. The essay she wrote was a part of the series that we were doing where writers sort of explore the music and the songs that got them through the lockdown. Lisa wrote this essay about her experience listening to Hall & Oates in her Vegas apartment. Lisa stages this beautiful scene in her essay, which sees her singing Hall & Oates' Say It Isn't So into a whisk in her kitchen. And just listening to the segment actually puts a voice to the scene described. One of the Zoom gatherings that Lisa co-organized was this election night Zoom dance party co-created and co-organized with Toisha Tucker, a Bronx-based visual artist. And the invitation was very clear. People were not to be like poking in on the election results, you know, very much keeping a presence here in this Zoom universe. There would be dancing and folks were also encouraged to bring their own club ambiance. And we did. We danced our, our sad little hearts out. <laughs> Here are Lisa Coe and Toisha Tucker. At the very beginning of the pandemic, one of the first things that you were told was the absolute worst thing you could do was to sing. Singing became this really dangerous thing. It's like hard to think of karaoke, the, the action of like sharing music, sharing songs with other people, with your friends, as being like deadly. My name is Lisa Ko. I am an amateur at home and away from home karaoke enthusiast. I've been singing lately a lot of men at work. Who can it be now? This year by the Mountain Goats, which has a line that says, I'm going to make it through this year if it kills me, which feels very appropriate. I am 
switch to Tucker. I go by Tucker. I, I wouldn't even say I'm amateur. I'm just an enthusiast. And sometimes I'm like amazing, and sometimes it's, it's pretty bad. Yeah, I'm free. Free falling. And I guess actually, you know, we should discuss what, what is the karaoke that we do. Uh, you can rent private rooms here in New York City. So you're not, you know, at a bar. You're just with your friends in a dark, stuffy room. In the pandemic, you wanted to recreate that because it's like, who doesn't want to hang out in a space and sing with their friends? But it was also like one of the things that you were told and we were all warned against was singing. On a platform like Zoom, the sound doesn't really sync up with karaoke, which is what I found. Like I was thinking about how, you know, in like the very early days of the pandemic, when we all felt like it was going to be a matter of weeks, maybe, but also I deeply felt like the world was about to end. I was terrified. And I remember how in those early weeks, there was a really big rush of ways to recreate normal life because we were still used to like seeing friends and going out on a regular basis. And I organized a few karaoke nights with one or two other people trying to figure out how to do the sound. So these are like a, a star and figure out how you can actually Zoom karaoke because you can't just be like, I'm going to Zoom with my friends and do karaoke. It's, it's horrible. Yeah, I, I found, you know, what's interesting about doing a lot of YouTube karaoke recently is I found that because any song is available, because I don't have to necessarily share with a room full of people and we're not renting by the hour, it's kind of pushed me to sing a lot of random stuff that I wouldn't necessarily sing. And so I found myself doing a lot of like comfort karaoke, a lot of heavy nostalgia songs from my childhood, two really very esoteric things that I would normally not think of singing. When you're left to your own devices to do karaoke, it's kind of weird because you're not building that like, like an exquisite corpse, right? Of, of like songs where like Lisa goes and I'm like, oh, that reminds me of da da da. And then I go and then that reminds someone else of this other thing. And you. But then there's like the sense of sadness. Like, it's great that we can do this, but also why are we doing this? We're doing this because things are collapsing, <laughs> like, outside our apartments. And that's really terrible, right? This feeling of trying to sing through the tears or sing with the tears, which to me is sort of the joy of karaoke in, in the first place. I found that you can't have everyone's mic gone, right? Because then you're getting all this feedback and echoing. And part of what's lovely for me about karaoke is that bad voices still harmonize. We can all sing, it, it works out. And if I'm just singing and you guys are all on mute and I also don't feel your energy, there's nothing happening. And, I, and I'm, I'm like, is this bad? Am I, am I bombing, you know? Yeah, I feel like there was a way, there was a point in which it felt sad, even though there were times that I really enjoyed doing things like virtual dance parties and virtual karaoke. But there was definitely a point, maybe in the early winter, when, when things felt pretty bleak, I think, all around. Yeah, it felt it felt like I was trying to pretend to like keep my energy up in a certain way that I wasn't actually feeling. And that gap between performance and, and the reality felt like a lot. Even though you're doing it on Zoom, like you're only hearing your own voice. And it's in a crappy way because the reception is really bad. There wasn't even the, oh, I'm going to run outside with you and go down the street and get some fries or whatever from this place. You know, you start talking to the people around you and you can't do that on Zoom. I can't have a side combo with Lisa while somebody else is singing. Guys, we're going to a breakout room. We'll be back. <laughs> you can like, you can DM me in the, in the private chat. <laughs> One of my favorite parts of karaoke is when you eventually have to go to the bathroom and you're walking down the halls and you're just hearing the sound coming out of all these other rooms. And you're like, is that what it sounds like from our room too? 
I think what I learned is it's not an experience you can replicate. And yeah, it just felt like a poor substitution. It felt even lonelier than maybe doing it alone or with my partner in our apartment. I think also, you know, because the weather is getting warmer and, and people are getting vaccinated, I've been able to to see friends like in person. So it feels less um, necessary. One of the things I've really missed is just having those accidental run-ins with people. I, I do miss that like casual nature of running into your friends' friends who you sort of know, but you don't know well enough to like really hang out with one-on-one in a pandemic. <laughs> I imagine renting a big room and then just having people like come in and out, you know, seeing some people that I haven't seen for, for a long time. That idea of a big collective space where people can like come in and then leave when they're ready and, and some people stay the whole time. And to me, you know, one of the most important things is that we get to go out to eat afterwards. So, it's, you know, late at night and we can get Korean food somewhere in K-Town and have a big communal meal of, you know, barbecue and noodles. I am going to make it through this year if it kills me. To close out this episode, we've invited Elena Passarello, an Oregon-based writer and performer, to share an audio essay with us. And Naila, I believe you've worked with Elena, haven't you? Yes, I actually interviewed her a few years ago um, for The Organist, The Believer's sister podcast at the time. I talked to Elena about her books, Let Me Clear My Throat, which is a series of essays about the human voice, and Animal Strike Curious Poses, which is a collection of sparkling, scintillating essays on animals. And I just have gained so much from Elena's writing over the years. Mm, I mean, it's she's so good. She is so good at everything. Mm -hmm. She's a good actor. Yes. <laughs> she's a good writer. Yeah. She's really funny online. Yeah, she's so bright. Well, if you know Elena, you might know that she thinks deeply about Elvis Presley in so much that she's working on a book about him. This next essay, which is also somehow about puppets and Elvis tribute artists, touches on how both people and puppets are vessels for our imaginations. Yes, absolutely. And this essay is also a little bit about loneliness and facsimile and what you do when your projects take on lives of their own. With musical coverage from Arthur Moon and Tyler Tingey, up next is Elena Passarello in an essay we've titled Wooden Heart. If you're like me, when you feel sad or overwhelmed or isolated, there are a few categories of videos that you can search for online and then watch until you feel a little bit better. Here are my top three search categories. Classic movie musical numbers, Andy Kaufman's Elvis impersonations, and most frequently, kids having really intense conversations with puppets. You can find entire YouTube playlists of the children of the 1970s and 80s, kids like I was, staring deep into the eyes of an old-school Sesame Street character, as if the kid and the puppet were the only two living creatures in the whole TV studio. Do you suppose we could count together? One of my favorite videos is this Sesame Street clip from 1974 of a three-year-old named John John who counts to 20 with Harry, the blue monster. I go first. Oh, you, you want to go, go first? Second. Okay, you go first. And when the little boy loses track of his numbers, he searches his scene partner's inanimate face and he really, deliberately asks the puppet, Hey, do you know what number comes after 15? After 15 comes... Uh... 16. Oh, because after... 
John John's total engagement is what gets me. He seems to witness something in the puppet that resembles his own little heart, his own unadulterated magic. It's his trust that makes the puppet all the more real to me. Performance scholars and child psychologists alike have noted the ways puppets disarm children. One detail that I've read time and again is that even crudely designed puppets, a sock with googly eyes, for example, still inspire children to endow the puppets with full humanity and to tell them all their secrets. Sometimes experts say the less a puppet looks like an actual creature, the better. 19. Um, what comes after 19? 20. John John, is that you all grown up? It sure is, Harry. When I was growing up in the 80s in South Carolina, I had this terrifying first grade teacher named Ms. Rakestraw, and she showed her softer side via a troop of puppets that she employed to various ends in her classroom. There was Word Bird, who taught us vocabulary, Inchworm, who had something to do with counting, and then there was Lambie, a sleepy baby sheep to whom we could talk about our feelings on bad days. And I have the clearest memory still of staring into Lambie's face and whispering my confessions. That's got to be at least one reason why watching John John count with Harry Monster soothes me so. I was certainly visiting my stash of soothing YouTube puppet videos about this time last year when the pandemic had begun shutting down our world. While I'm so grateful to have been spared any severe hardships, my latest writing project was supposed to involve lots of time-sensitive travel, and so it absolutely tanked when things got locked down. The first among a dozen flights I had to cancel was a red-eye to the Georgia coast on the Ides of March, where I'd bought a non-refundable ticket to an Elvis Presley festival. This trip was supposed to be the next in a line of Elvis-related public events that I'd planned to attend in 2020, because I was researching Presley's legend in the exact year that the icon had been dead longer than he was alive. Most people agree that the real Elvis hasn't walked this earth since that August night in 1977, when he played a few games of racquetball, then changed into his gold pajamas, and retired to his spacious Graceland bathroom to read. But the opportunities to simulate Elvis as a living part of this planet are still literally countless, even 42 years after his death. I was never alive the same time as Elvis. He died six months before I was born. But thanks to these myriad opportunities to visit some relic or reconstruction of the king, he's never felt quite dead to me. Replications, emulations, and other forms of counterfeit are actually the only Elvis I've ever gotten to know in real time. In the months before lockdown, I had spent the night in Elvis's teenage bedroom. I'd philosophized about death with a Tupelo security guard in the shotgun house where Presley was born, and I even married my sweetheart in a Las Vegas ceremony that was conducted by the same wigged and jumpsuited Elvis minister that officiated John Bon Jovi's wedding. But more than anything for this project, I've been traveling to festivals and competitions to watch dozens, I mean, at this point, it's more like hundreds of Elvis impersonators. Although the first rule of the faux Elvis world is to never use that word, impersonator, their preferred moniker is Elvis Tribute Artist, or ETA. And any ETA you meet will stress that they have no aims to actually become Presley, only to adopt his unmistakable baritone and strike his signature poses while wearing perfect replicas of his classic outfits, sideburns and all. They see themselves just as entertainers who slip into the iconic image and then work the gears of the Elvis legend from the inside. In movies and TV shows, impersonating Elvis is often depicted as chintzy or slapdash, a backyard thing. But don't knock the art form until you've seen one of the real pros strut his stuff. Vocally deft, limber, clad in thousands of dollars of costuming, 
professional ETAs perform internationally on cruise ships, in TV commercials, and at lavish venues from Vegas to Branson to Graceland itself. Only the very best Elvi on the planet qualify for the Ultimate ETA, a contest that holds its finals just across Elvis Presley Boulevard from the King's famous mansion. Every summer, well, it was canceled in 2020, of course, you can watch Ultimate Elvises from Brazil, Japan, the UK, and Australia outgyrate one another for a five-figure purse. And each of these men, and they're always men, chisels his repertoire from Elvis's 600-plus song discography. They focus on just one of the many versions of Elvis known to his most loyal fans. Gospel Elvis, Vegas Elvis, Rockabilly Elvis. Younger ETAs with higher vocal ranges might step inside the gold lame jacket and wet pompadour of 1950s Elvis. And for that gig, they must teach their bodies to pinwheel kick around the stage and to let their hips work the same scandalous circles that banned the original Elvis's lower half from Ed Sullivan. A bad boy 30-something ETA in good shape might master the 1968 comeback special Elvis, which requires a lot of lunging around in black leather and mimicking the roster of moves that Elvis performed in his most famous TV concert. But by far, most ETAs choose to don spangly bell-bottom jumpsuits. Oh my God, those jumpsuits and pay tribute to the 1970s concert version of Elvis with his karate kicks and mutton chops and vigorous fruging. When a world-class Elvis in white gabardine and rhinestones takes the stage to the opening baseline of Poke Salad Annie, a staple song from Latter-day Elvis setlists, today's audience members in 2021 still know the bucking windmill arm motions and the shoulder shimmies of that performance by heart, and they often bust the exact same moves right alongside the performer on stage. Usually when people talk about Elvis as a puppet, it's in reference to his relationship with Colonel Tom Parker, his manager, who some see as a Svengali figure that kept Elvis locked in oppressive movie contracts and short-sighted royalty deals. But I see another puppetry in this decades-long remembrance of Elvis. One reason for his cultural longevity, I think, is that Elvis is easy to make a puppet out of. For one thing, his image is ripe for caricature. It can be painted by lots of bodies in broad strokes, with a structured dark wig, a figure-obscuring rhinestoned onesie, and two triangular sideburns. And even offstage, fans have puppeted Elvis's sweeping story to reflect the contents of their own hearts. Just as ETAs choose an era of songs to depict, fans can select one Elvis persona to celebrate, because both his music and his biography are so varied. They've got high notes and low ones, moments of both mastery and buffoonery. A fan can stare deeply into the face of this legend and see only what they want to. The polite Southern mama's boy or the man of God, or the soldier, or the diva, or the lonely maximalist whose appetites outpaced him. Of all the eras depicted by ETAs, one is decidedly underrepresented, and that is movie Elvis. Only a few of his 31 films, yeah, you heard me right, Elvis made 31 films, seem to have stuck with fans, despite the fact that his acting work spanned the majority of his 23-year career. A few early flicks are pretty good, like King Creole or Jailhouse Rock, but as the 1960s wore on, Elvis movie plots grew formulaic to the point of being interchangeable. As Girls, Girls, Girls bled into Girl Happy and Speedway became spin-out, Elvis phoned in his performances more and more, often with a faraway look in his eyes. In scenes, he sometimes seemed to be orbiting his co-stars rather than interacting with them. And by his 18th movie, Tickle Me, in which he plays an out-of-work rodeo writer moonlighting at a weight loss camp, Elvis was doing a sleepy on-screen impersonation of himself. And Elvis went to Miami. 
clocked only a few movie tunes during these home shows. A little less conversation, or bossa nova baby, or clean up your own backyard. But I was hoping for some of the forgotten Elvis movie stinkers, like Do the Clam, or There's No Room to Roomba in a Sports Car. Most ETA live streams stuck to the hits, though. One noticeable development was how rarely the ETAs got into their full Elvis drag. On the live streams, we saw each guy's real hairline. Sometimes we saw how their kitchens were decorated. We even saw them in blue jeans, which was purportedly Elvis's least favorite attire. I can't help but marvel at the fact that, for the first time in my life, the pandemic leveled the playing field between the real Elvis and his thousands of tributaries. My whole life, I only accessed the original Elvis Presley via a screen, in a book, or on a recording, but suddenly, these 21st century simulated Elvises that I'd seen all over the planet were faced with the exact same limitations. And the leveling really doesn't stop there, I suppose, because we all became Elvis for a time, existing mostly on grainy Zoom videos, filmed just from the waist up. And I'm sad to say that limiting all my social interactions to these virtual spaces was much easier than I'd like to admit. The pandemic unwittingly turned my friends, family, and colleagues into somewhat simpler versions of the complex humans I know them to be. My community of three-dimensional figures flattened into eyes, noses, and mouths, traveling in pixels toward me. So I guess in that way, we all became puppets too. Around Labor Day last year, I was stuck inside even more than usual, thanks to terrible Oregon wildfires that spiked air quality ratings beyond hazardous and all but blotted out the sun. We were ordered to stay home and limit resource use, and I decided to spend my housebound time not watching any more ETA live streams, but mainlining the real deal. Because I am both an extremist and an escapist, I watched all 31 Elvis films pretty much back-to-back over four bleary days, which is an activity I wholeheartedly do not recommend. But still, this became the longest elapsed time I'd ever spent with the moving image of Elvis in all my years of researching his legacy. And there were several moments in his movie catalog I knew to watch out for, like his chemistry with Anne Margaret in Viva Las Vegas or his tiny white shorts in Blue Hawaii. I was really excited to see his famously disturbing duet about yoga with Elsa Lancaster, the actress who played the original Bride of Frankenstein in 1935, which, by the way, was the same year Elvis was born. But around the 12-hour mark of my first day, I watched a musical number that I'd never heard about before, and it straight up knocked me out. Buried in a low-stakes moment of Presley's fifth film, G.I. Blues, is one of the most breathtaking Elvis performances I have ever seen. I mean, it is right up there with Ed Sullivan, and that's the way it is. The song is called Wooden Heart, and it's another anodyne Elvis movie ballad, but Wooden Heart is unique because it's the only song that Elvis sings while staring into the button eyes of a puppet. And if you... In the movie, Elvis is strolling around Frankfurt, Germany with his human love interest. And for some reason, he crashes an outdoor Punch and Judy-esque puppet show. His stage partner is a Fräulein hand puppet in a dirndl skirt and winking eyes. And as a kindergarten class watches them, the decidedly randy doll chases Elvis around the proscenium. In that confined space, Elvis masterfully executes a sequence of comic beats. He beckons to the puppet like Patrick Swayze. He holds her wooden hand and bops from stage left to right. At one point, she whirls to advance on him, and he takes the energy that she throws into his own body and lets it propel his shoulders backward. 
Then, the Fraulein's puppet father enters with a long stick, ending the number by hitting Elvis in a series of smacks, which Elvis telegraphs with clownish accuracy, bonk, 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 inching downward until his chin rests on the stage, his eyes crossed, and all de kinder in stitches. This is great bit work, and he is selling it, man. He's quick in his body. He's very funny. Sinatra was never so sharp in any of his musical films. A lot of people hate G.I. Blues because it's a film utterly devoid of Elvis's rock and roll chops. And sure, this performance didn't start a cultural movement like Mystery Train did, but it's so alive. It's also a kind of steamy number, thanks to the intensity of Elvis's gaze at the puppet, the soft approach of his lips when he kisses her hand. I can't help but note that to my eyes, at least, Elvis is so much more fluid with her than with any human co-star from his other films. Watching Wooden Heart again today, I still get the sense that Elvis totally believes in his co-star. No visible part of him acknowledges the hand of her skirt. They're just two performers, both of them vessels for other people's imaginations, working against what they originally represented, but still making a crowd of people smile. Certain artists are just like that, I guess. Sometimes I think I'm better with puppets, too. After all, what is writing if not staying away from humans in order to interact with their facsimiles? If I were in ETA, this is the number that I'd select. This would be my tribute. Not Hound Dog or Heartbreak Hotel or even Hunka Hunka Burn in Love. I want to simulate the moment in which Elvis put all of his trust in a puppet. My costume would be a replica of this army blouse and a high and tight wig, no sideburns. I'm sure ETA fans would raise their eyebrows when they watched me lug a puppet theater up onto the stage of the ultimate ETA's final round. The crude puppet over my right hand wouldn't be a blonde Fraulein, but a puppet version of me in my Sesame Street days. A freckled, punky Brewster lookalike in pigtails. An only child more comfortable with dolls than other people. The wooden little girl would follow my ETA body around the stage, watching me for cues as I sang. Fascinated by the melody coming from my mouth, she would bop along as I crooned the lyrics in the closest thing to Elvis's warbly baritone that I could muster, and I would make sure to gaze at that puppet reassuringly, to let her nestle onto my shoulder and to hold her hand. Treat me nice, we would sing. Treat me good, because I am not made of wood, and I don't have a wooden heart. Naila, this episode wraps season one of Black Mountain Radio. I'm so happy. I'm so happy for everyone who worked on the season. I've really enjoyed listening to all the work of so many different collaborators and people, very smart, creative people, from our staff to our contributors. It's truly an achievement. Oh, thanks, Naila. I'm just going to try not to cry over here. It's, it's been a labor of love, for sure. And for listeners, I definitely want to mention that we will be back with a season two in September. So please make sure you subscribe to the podcast and share it with the people that you love. Another thing, please pitch us or give us your thoughts. We're definitely open to many varieties of work, conversations, original reporting, voice-driven audio essays, interviews, criticism, collage, and the stuff that's not so easy to classify. Definitely don't be shy. Connect with us by visiting blackmountainradio.org. 
Black Mountain Radio is broadcast from Southern Paiute land. And Black Mountain Radio is an audio project of the Beverly Rogers, Carol C. Harder, Black Mountain Institute. Sada Ortiz is the architect and also the host. And today's fantastic guest host is my dear friend and colleague, Naila Orr. This fantastic steel pedal cover of Love Me Tender was performed by Tyler Tingey. Our senior producer is Nicole Kelly. Vera Blossom and Layla Muhammad are our fantastic associate producers. Scott Dickensheets is our editor. Anthony Ferris is our production assistant. Phil Corbett is our sound mixer. Our theme song is by Jeremy Klawicki. Art by Jesse Jung. Graphic design by Lily Allen. Copy editing by Summer Tomad. And a special shout out to our KUMV engineer, Kevin Crow. <laughs> and special thanks to our contributors in this episode. Rachel James, Lisa Coe, Amy Kurzweil, Ray Kurzweil, Arthur Moon, Vicky Now, Elena Passarello, Geneva Skeen, and Toysha Tucker. Thanks to the rest of the team at the Black Mountain Institute, Kellen Braddock, Daniel Gambiner, Haley Patel, Kristen Radke, Michael Ursell, and Haya Wang. Black Mountain Radio is supported by the Rogers Foundation and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Big thanks to our sponsors at Sappos, who helped make this episode possible and who contribute to Las Vegas' creative communities. So we can come back on air soon. Please consider supporting this project and all we do as a friend of the Black Mountain Institute. We welcome volunteers and advice and urge anyone who is able to go to blackmountaininstitute.org and make a donation of $10 a month. In addition to a heavy fallout of cosmic gratitude, you'll get a subscription to The Believer, a thank you in his pages, and other tokens of our appreciation. Our deep gratitude goes to Nevada Humanities and the National Endowment for the Humanities for supporting Black Mountain Radio. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Sada. Thank you so much, Naila.